I'm Maylily Lee. Welcome to Building Worldviews, the Praxis Circle podcast. We're delighted to present these excerpts from full-length interviews with experts you can find at praxiscircle.com. Become a member by registering at our website and subscribe or follow this podcast for our latest episodes. Today, Praxis Circle's Doug Monroe starts the first of a four-part series with British author and social critic Oz Guinness, described as a quiet voice of faith, freedom, truth, and reason. Oz starts off with inspirations from his life and experiences that shaped his worldview. Let's listen. Ready? Okay, we rolling? This is the first question. Other than the Gospels, because we know uh, you're, you're motivated as a follower of Christ, in the last 20 years, basically since you've left the Trinity Forum, who has inspired you? You inspire so many people. Who, who has inspired you, would you say, one or two people or whatever? Well, I try to read very widely, uh, including people I disagree with strongly, but I think if there's any group of people who have made a tremendous difference in my thinking, it would be some of the leading Jewish thinkers. A friend of mine introduced me to Daniel Elazar, and he was the man who reintroduced the notion of covenant and his background to the U.S. Constitution. And then following up from Elazar, people like Michael Walzer at Princeton, or Eric Nelson at Harvard, who wrote a brilliant book on the Hebrew Republic, in the 17th century, and then, of course, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And I've read everything that uh, Rabbi Sachs has read, but that whole Jewish understanding. So there are too many Christians who have unhitched their faith from the Old Testament. And, of course, it's in the Torah that we have many of the deepest ideas of our Western society. Humans made in the image of God or a high view of truth as the reality of reality, or the importance of words. A word created the world. Words can destroy the world. And you think, say, the social media or the former president's tweets. We need a reformation of words. Now, all of that, including the notion of covenant and its underlying of constitution. I owe that to the Jewish understanding. So that's probably the thing I've explored more than any other in the last eight years. I've certainly found in my own study, because we all do our own thing to some extent, uh, that I, I feel myself becoming more Jewish <laughs> as I go along. And, uh, and so Christ was uh, certainly a, uh, probably an Orthodox Jew, although he's came up with some new wrinkles, for sure. Um, you wanted to write more. That was a strong motivation. And I'm wondering if that's been true in hindsight, and what was that motivation? I had the privilege of founding the Trinity Forum. But oddly, the gift we had, which was Aspen-style Socratic discussion, didn't play into the gift of mine that I love above all, which is speaking. It allowed me to write, and I produced seven curricula while with the forum, but it didn't give me much time. So I wanted to speak more, and I wanted to write more books. You, uh, th this is a humble man like you is going to have a hard time with this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. 
uh, I think it can be answered with humility. What, when you think about your legacy uh, in writing um, and overall, what, how would you like that to, to be? Doug, if you know me, I don't even answer the question because I don't believe in legacy. And, you know, it's in secular business circles, people in their 50s, 60s are challenged to think through what is their legacy they're leaving to their children and the next generation. And that's come into the church too. But I don't even believe it's the right question because I think we do what we do. And legacy is when the Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant. In other words, we're doing it before one audience, the audience of one, and we have no idea what we've achieved in this life. And any measurable outcome we can look to in this life is probably wrong. And you think of someone, the greatest Christian in our generation was Billy Graham. Preached to millions, but who knows if some lady in Mississippi, who's a terrific prayer warrior, hardly anyone knows about it, in the kingdom, she may be more powerful than Billy Graham. So I personally never think of legacy. Always just try and get on with being faithful with my calling. And then one day when I meet the caller, our Lord, then maybe I'll know what my legacy is. But I couldn't care less what people think about it today. Well, I'm, I'm getting a lot of pleasure out of, and this, this came more by happenstance than, than a conspiracy, but doing this interview here in the Trinity Forum uh, is, is, I think, just fantastic. And I think your, your legacy goes way beyond that. Uh, it, not that this is any small thing, because it's astounding what, what's been happening here. I think it's a real center of dialogue that probably you exceeded your expectations on some basis. Um, so this is a really off-the-wall question, but I've, I've I probably imagine you as somebody uh, you're not, but living in, in uh, the UK in the 1960s, uh, you, what was that like? Was that fun or do you know why, why I'm asking that question? Because I'm an American that has this impression of, of what it was like to be in, in uh, the, uh, during the British invasion, let's say, in the 60s. Well, I'm eternally grateful to be a child of the 60s. You know, everything had to be thought back to square one. This was the decade of the counterculture, drug, sex, rock and roll. So I'm at the University of London, and we had Bergman films, Fellini films, The Beatles, in Berkeley, the free speech movement, in Germany, the Red Brigade, and all these sort of things happening. So nothing could be taken for granted. Nothing was self-evident. You were pressed back to square one. If you believed, which I did, I came to faith in 1960, you had to know what you believed, why you believed, and able to answer it with the toughest critics. So I'm eternally grateful. You know, the 70s was called the me decade. And people shifted to think about themselves and an awful lot of navel gazing. You know, and so I'm glad to have come to faith and weathered the 1960s. And of course, my first trip to the US was in 1968. So Martin Luther King had been assassinated, Senator Kennedy assassinated, 100 American cities were ablaze. And yet the radicals knew they wouldn't win 
in the streets. They had to do the long march through the institutions. So I came back to Europe and I realized something amazing was happening in America, in the counterculture, and started to give talks on it. And unbeknownst to me, that became later my first book. So the 60s are incredibly decisive for me, and I'm always grateful. For example, in the 60s, a crossroads in Europe, six hitchhikers. One would be reading Friedrich Nietzsche, one would be reading Hermann Hesse's Siddhartha, one might be reading C.S. Lewis, and the books would go round and people were searching, wrestling, questing. It was a fascinating decade. And then 70s, hitchhiking disappeared, the searching stopped, the wrestling ceased, and people didn't think like that. So I'm incredibly grateful to be a child of the crazy 60s. You were, you were in many ways on the firing line at that point, and I was old enough to see you guys coming and to appreciate what you did and experience. I'm unfortunately more a product of the 70s. Um, so on the firing line, what, you, you probably formed uh, the details of your worldview, and we're moving to those questions. We're actually a tenth of the way through the interview already, so you can see how we can move. Um, how would you describe your, your worldview in, say, two minutes? When I was at London University, a book came out by Harry Blamires called The Christian Mind. And it began with the opening words, the chief feature of the Christian mind is that there's no Christian mind. In other words, many of us realized that we had a faith that was personal, real, and deep. But there was no biblical worldview. So the full range of biblical truths, who God is, compared, say, with the Indian views of God or the Buddhist views of God or atheist views of the worldview. And then you go down to some of the other central features of a Christian worldview, a high view of human dignity made in the image of God so that humanities understood upwards, not downwards. We're not just toolmakers or selfish genes or naked apes, as Desmond Morris had us. We can only be understood, if we want to be fulfilled, upwards, made in the image and likeness of God. Or you go down to a biblical view of truth or freedom or justice or peace. All these things are incredibly important, and together they form the full orbit of a Christian worldview, which is the filter through which we're looking at reality and seeing life. So ever since Harry Blamers, I've realized the fundamental importance of developing a Christian worldview. And of course, I now believe it is the deepest, richest way to see life because it's true. Exactly. Um. Well, this, this, this next question involves um, an aspect of the Christian worldview that you've written a book about, Carpe Diem, uh, and it contrasts the, the circular worldview versus the more linear worldview. And um, so the question is, is it a straight line for Christianity, or is it, what, what is it? Um, progressives would think that just do what I say and we'll move on a straight line. How, can you answer that question? Well, I think the biblical and the Christian and Jewish view of time is one of the great distinctives of the Bible. 
And you really have, in effect, three views of time in the world and in history. The first is cyclical, which is the Hindu and the Buddhist view. Now, obviously, there are cycles in nature, spring, summer, autumn, winter, and there are cycles in our lives, birth, growth, maturity, decline, death. There's nothing wrong with cycles. But what the Hindus have done is project that onto the very universe itself. And you have a rather meaningless view of history and individual life. For instance, in the cyclical view, freedom is not freedom to be an individual. It's freedom from individuality. So that's the cyclical view. The biblical view is what's called covenantal. God has purposes, providence over history. So it's going in his direction. But as we come to know him and trust him and obey him and discover our gifts and calling, we become junior partners in God's purpose and history. And that's why it's called the covenantal view of time. God's providence and our partnership in obeying our callings. The third view is just chronological, and that's the secularist view. In other words, tick-tock, tick-tock, a succession of moments. There's no meaning, because after all, everything comes from chance. So there's no meaning in history. If we want meaning, we have to make it ourselves. So you have optimistic secularists who believe they can be the masters of history. And then you have people like Samuel Beckett who are much more pessimistic. History is desiccating us. You think of a play like Crap's Last Tape, reducing us to the meaninglessness of scattered moments. The biblical view, covenantal, is by far the richest. And I love the fact, you look in the Bible, we're called by our Lord and in the Old Testament to read the signs of the times. Our Lord says, you're good meteorologists, but you don't read the signs of the times. And then you have the wonderful idea you have in Acts 13, where Paul says about King David, he served God's purpose in his generation and then fell asleep, <laughs> which I absolutely loved. And then you have the most amazingly of all, Paul says to the early Christians that we're called to redeem the times. Now, if you read the versions today, many people view that as time and motion studies. In other words, pack the hour with all you can do productively. That's not what it means. The word time, redeem the time, is kairos, the significance of the moment, the opportunity or the crisis. But more importantly, the word redeem is the same word used of our Lord on the cross, redemption. So in some, I don't quite know what that means, only the Lord knows. If we're faithful to him in serving his purposes in our time, we can redeem the time in some way. In other words, the biblical view of time is the richest, deepest in all of history. And thank God we can find our own fulfillment in a deep way by understanding that. So the question about within the covenantal time, are we going somewhere in, in this world? Yeah. In the chronological view of time, to put meaning, you have to be the masters of history. And clearly we aren't. And so there are those, say, that the Marxists who promise us certain outcomes, and they've never happened. But in the biblical view, it doesn't only depend on us. 
And that's why you have the very important notion of the Messiah. So in this world, we're called to restore, to redeem, to work as God's partners, bringing back freedom, justice, human dignity in a world ruined by sin. But it's not all up to us. So the gates of hell, as Jesus says, will not prevail against the church. But not only that, we count on the Messiah. And one day, God will do through his servant, the Messiah, what no human beings until that day will do. And that's where only when the Messiah comes will we have what we call in this world utopia. And everything short of the Messiah will be utopian in the Thomas More sense of the word, no place. In other words, it won't happen. So in this world, the worst evils are done by utopians. People they can, who believe you can do it here and now. They can't. Mao Zedong, many others. They killed more people than anyone else. Utopians bring the worst evil. But Jews and Christians believe in the Messiah. What we can't fully do, he one day will. And that's our hope. Great answer. All right, I'm going to shift gears a little bit, and I'm going to rephrase this question. Um, I've got your books over there. I counted 20 books uh, on the piece of paper, and I strung them out, and I've only got about 12 there. And I think the ones in there in chronological order, mostly, um, I would say, relating to Christian narrative, uh, the ones like The Call, I left at home because I'd needed, I didn't have it in my book bag. The frustrating thing to me is, uh, it's a kind of a pet question, I, I want to be able to label that narrative or those words that what you're saying there, and others, of course, are saying the same thing. And uh, uh, Mr. Schaefer, for example, who you studied under. Um, so, how do we express how how do we express this worldview? How do we go beyond, you know, creation, fall, redemption, the normal time of Christian, and meet people? How can I how can I best do that? Do we need more terms? Do we need new thinking? What what do you does that question make sense to you? Okay. My passion has always been, put it in two words, analysis, where are we, and advocacy, what should we say and what should we be doing? And most of my books have one of those two themes in them. So some are analyzing the problems of the church and some are analyzing the problems of the culture. But at a certain point, you have to speak. You have to address what's there. Now, as I understand advocacy, or the old word apologetics, you don't start by putting out a Christian answer. You have to start by listening and loving people enough to listen to where they are. And then when you discover where they are, what Jesus called the treasure of their heart, what makes them really tick, then a Christian answer is inappropriate. People are only listen to the good news when they're in a bad situation. But most people don't know they're in a bad situation. So they have to be pressed out to see the inadequacies and eventually the bankruptcy of their own situation. So, for example, the classic Old Testament case is Elijah talking to the prophets of Baal. 850 false prophets, and he has the royal court, the power, against him. 
and the people, the ordinary people, sitting on the fence. He doesn't say, come back to God, come back to God, or Israel will fall apart like some preachers would today. He says quite daringly, if Baal is God, follow Baal. Now he can only do that because he knows Baal is not God. And the harder they try to follow Baal, they hit their heads against the wall. And eventually when they're stuck, he says, let me show you that the Lord is God and the fire falls. You remember the story. Now we've got to do the equivalent of that today. Don't immediately give a Christian answer. Press people to the logic of what they say they believe, because we know that it's inadequate, because it's not finally true, and at a certain point they will see its bankruptcy. And at that point, the biblical answer, or the Jewish and Christian answer, will be adequate where theirs is inadequate. So we've got to have the courage to press them out, whether they're atheists, or whether they're, say, cultural Marxists, or whatever it is. So I think we've got to have a, a much more biblical view of advocacy, or what the old term was, apologetics. We're going to come back to that question later on. That's, that's a great introductory um, thing, because that is what it's all about to some extent. Do you think um, does understanding worldview help in any, in any way to do that? Well, the understanding of worldview helps enormously because we have a Christian worldview, but an atheist or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim uh, or a Marxist, they have a worldview too. And the more clearly you understand their worldview, the more clearly you understand it's not purely theoretical, it will affect their practical lives and their policy, and that's where we disagree with them. So we need to really understand the worldviews. And too many conservatives and too many Christians don't. They don't think where something leads to. Okay, this is one you can tee off on, and I'm going to have to keep you to a half hour on this answer, okay? But um, which worldviews do you think are, are damaging the West the most? It could be one worldview, it could be two, but I mean, if just using your best judgmental hat in the kindest way you can, what would you say? Let me back up a second, okay. Doug. Yeah. Our Western world is the child of the Greeks. We owe a lot to the Greeks, philosophy, science, drama, art, democracy. It's a child of Rome, above all governance and odd little things like central heating, but it's principally a child of the gospel, and Europe in particular. But the West today is a cut flower civilization. Quite systematically and deliberately, it has cut the roots of what made it the greatness that the West has been. But the odd thing is that as we're at the end of 500 years of Western dominance, not that long, the principal challenges to the West are Western. That's Doug Monroe talking with Oz Guinness on Building Worldviews, the Praxis Circle podcast. In our next episode, Oz will discuss more politics in America and Europe 
as well as the political forces of globalism and populism. I'm May Lily Lee. Thanks for joining us. Visit PraxisCircle.com and remember to subscribe or follow this podcast for the latest updates.